everybody and welcome to JARG, the podcast that brings you information about endometriosis and adenomyosis. I'm joined this evening by a good friend, Dr. Connor Curley. Connor and I met a number of years back and he'll fill you in on that story. Um, so Connor, it's brilliant to have you on the podcast. Um, do you want to give us a little bit about yourself and you know, tell us how we met as well after that? Yeah, sure. So first of all, thanks a million for having me, Kathleen. This is uh, amazing and uh, congratulations. So yeah, my name is Connor Curley. I'm a dietitian uh, by trade and a doctor of nutrition, uh, award-winning researcher as well here in Ireland. Um, so that's a brief introduction to me. And Connor, I was looking for a plant-based uh, dietitian a number of years back when I held a conference for the EAI. And Given that, you know, endometriosis and diet is one of those things that people search for so often. And, um, you know, I was like, right, we want to cover everything at the conference here. We want to make sure we've got diet, we've got mindfulness, we've got all the therapies, we've got this, you know, factual education, pelvic physios. So when I got in contact with you first, you were like, oh, yeah, I do talks all the time. No problem. And I come off the phone thinking, I'm not sure he knows what endo is. And I think that might have been the situation for you. Is that right? Yeah, I still remember well. So yeah, you rang me, uh, I think, kind of uh, towards the tail end of 2019 uh, and asked me to speak about endometriosis. And uh, as you mentioned, <laughs> I was more than happy to do so. But as soon as I got off the phone, I remember Googling, what is endometriosis? And, you know, I suppose that's that's part of the problem, isn't it? That endometriosis is just not well enough known. And, you know, I'm a, a healthcare professional you know, did 10 years of training, did a lot of research, worked in a lot of hospitals, a lot of research labs. And I had very, very rarely heard of endometriosis ever. And I certainly didn't know what it was. So as I said, the first thing I did was find out what it was and then how nutrition was involved. And um, I suppose, you know, the conference, I think, was a couple of weeks away at that stage. So I didn't get to look at everything, but uh, I, I certainly got to find out some information and, uh, and present that. Uh, I suppose one of the, the big issues from that day for me personally was, you know, attending the conference, which I'd obviously never attended before, and seeing how many people were just so severely affected um, that I didn't really know. Um, so just how common endometriosis was, how severe it was, and then obviously how neglected it is. So that really sparked my, my interest and passion. And I think if you can remember, I, I stuck around for the day to kind of find out more after my own presentation find out more and more and talk to, to so many people in the room and I guess I, I made it sort of my life mission from there to, to try and help as much as possible and um, just unfortunately a couple of months later COVID-19 a little thing called COVID-19 hit the world and uh, changed not only my plans but uh, the whole entire world's plans and um, so yeah stifled progress there but uh thankfully got back into it and um, so <clears throat> Perfect. And then we were very fortunate, I think, too, that your interest continued in that because you came to the Below the Belt screening that um, I had organised the Irish premiere there on the 6th of October last year. And it was fantastic to see you there and to see that spark that we'd ignited in you back in, in November of 2019 had kept going. And, um, you know, like you had a very moving experience at Below the Belt, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. And uh you know, it, it was so great to see such a, a public event happening and so well attended. But um, just for everybody listening at home, so um, Kathleen organised a screening of Below the Belt, uh, which I'm sure many listeners will be very familiar with. Um, so as I sat down, it was random seating in the cinema. And as I sat down, a few minutes later, somebody sat in front of me and it was my cousin. And I didn't know that my cousin had endometriosis and my cousin didn't know that I had a, a personal experience or a personal uh, interest in endometriosis. So I remember tipping on the shoulder 
And she looked around like, Connor, what are you doing here? And I was like, well, what are you doing here? And then that's when I found out. So I kind of used that as a, I suppose, as a sign. Um, that you know, this is so common. It affects my family as well. But, um, so many, so many families all over the world. And then thankfully, uh, I think there was a, a gynecologist, um, Dr. Hugh O'Connor was on the panel. And I, we had a good chat afterwards and uh, that really just ignited that there was definitely something here. And of course, speaking to other pan, um, attendees as well. So, um, yeah, thanks for organizing, Kathleen. <laughs> oh, look, no problem. And it's, it's great to have people like yourself from completely outside of the community attend events like that. Because, you know, like I speak to loads of people about endometriosis every single day of the week. <clears throat> majority of them are directly affected some are indirectly affected as well and some people like yourself are removed from it until you start that conversation and then they sort of go hang on a minute that sounds like somebody in the family or somebody that they know so you never really know who you're speaking to you never know going to know who that's going to affect as well and it is quite a positive thing and one of the things that I like when I'm choosing speakers or choosing people to speak to is I like lived experience and I like that a lived experience can inform our approach to things. And as a scientist and, you know, combining that with lived experience, like yourself, you can come up with some fantastic ideas. And you do have, you know, a history of a chronic illness. You have history, you know, there. Is there, you know, anything that you've taken from that that sort of informed your career choice, but also, you know, your sort of social conscience and compassion around this? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So for, again, just for all your listeners, when I was 15, I was diagnosed with uh, MS, multiple sclerosis. And I guess at the time I was quite young and interested in sports and school and whatever else. And um, that really shifted, I suppose, my entire attitude to, to life, uh, not to get overly deep about it. But up till then, I was a, a typical happy-go-lucky boy. You know, I was interested in, in sports and, uh, and you know, that was mostly it, really, and, and girls. <laughs> Um, but then, uh, you know, the diagnosis and the, the severity of my illness early on really, uh, you know, changed my attitude to, to life. Uh, and, and that's the, the be all and end all. So, you know, back then, you know, I became really paralyzed on the, the left hand side of my body. I lost about 90 percent power and function. So, you know, I couldn't walk. I couldn't tie my laces. I couldn't use a knife and fork. I couldn't do anything, really. And it was a long process through different therapies physio ot etc etc speech and language therapy and um, that i gradually regained function and then unfortunately as i was getting back to health i had a, a, a second relapse this time on the right hand side of my body and that's when the diagnosis came when all the scans and lumbar punctures and blood tests in between and um, so i guess from then i really uh, shifted from just being interested in sports to being interested in health and uh, mostly from a, a selfish personal point of view but then trying to help others as well. And one of the areas I thought had to be really important was nutrition. And this is going back 20 years ago. I'm showing my age now. <laughs> so 20 years ago, like, I mean, there was very little internet. I didn't certainly didn't have internet at home. There was no smartphones. I still remember getting information in the library and so on. So when I went to college, Trinity College here in Ireland, uh, one of the, the world-renowned institutions here, um, you know, I studied dietetics, human nutrition and dietetics. And from there, uh, the point was to be able to help my, myself improve my own nutrition and then help others as well. Um, so absolutely, as you said, did uh, have a major impact on my uh, career choice, but also just on my compassion because, you know, I've sat in the doctor's, doctor's office and felt not listened to. Maybe I was a 15-year-old kid, but um, I still, you know, you know, really empathise with anybody who's not listened to by healthcare professionals. And um, also, I think there's a huge amount in, in personal experience 
sorry <laughs> sorry about that um so you know like how you feel and how you know how your body reacts to different things and that may not be the same for, for person to person um and then i think one thing which i really uh kind of looked at is uh you know that uh, what's the risk benefit for doing something and um, because when it comes to a surgery a new medication some exercise a certain nutrition approach or whatever like is there a benefit and is there a risk and how how do they work against each other and if we can do that then definitely if some of the, if the benefits or potential benefits outweigh the potential risks i think it's definitely something worth um worth uh you know discussing or or worth trying um, and that's whether it is surgery or medication or, or nutrition or exercise or um, stress reduction meditation whatever it is and um, what is the risk and what is the benefit and that's, I suppose, one way where we can all become citizen scientists as well, isn't it? You know, we can run experiments on ourselves quite ethically, <laughs> quite easily. Quite ethically, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the one caveat I would say is just, you know, like sometimes, uh, you know, people think that if they're doing something uh, that it is, uh, you know, all of a sudden, you know, people start drinking more water, thinking, oh, my God, I've got bigger muscles or something like this. When water definitely <laughs> doesn't cause your muscles to get bigger. Um, so, you know, there is a... There is. We do need to be a little bit cautious, but absolutely, a little bit of self experimentation. I'd somebody come to me in clinic a while ago, tell me they were doing a blood type diet, um, where they were just told, you know, I think they were blood type A, and they shouldn't eat X, Y, and Z food. So of course they cut out all sugar, all carbohydrates, all fats, and you know added fats and so on, and they were feeling great and losing weight. But I was saying, well, it's not got to do with the blood type. It's just because you're not eating sugars and <laughs> and fats, whatever. So you know there is that that element of self-experimentation potentially but also just being aware of you know that, you know just because somebody says this might work doesn't mean you know if you feel the benefit that it's it's definitely uh whatever whatever wacky therapy somebody this is whatever, it. whatever and this is like. where the accurate information comes in as well doesn't it and being able to discern between somebody who's trying to you know um sort of basically sell snake oil and somebody who's trying to you know, give you accurate information and giving you the information and those tools that you can help make the decision yourself is quite important, isn't it? Yeah, um, so, and yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a huge thing. And with regards to blood groups, just leave that to us for transfusion. We're happy yeah. to handle that. Don't be doing <laughs> diets on it, please. Exactly, yeah. Um, so in terms of your research, your research was, you know, not uh, like in the gynae field. It wasn't in the um, endometriosis field. But yet you've been able to turn your knowledge and research and your skills towards developing a product to help those and um, support those who live with endometriosis symptoms. Can you tell me a wee bit more about that product development and the research that went into that? Yeah, so basically, I suppose pre-COVID, I would have done my own research where I myself was in the hospital doing specific trials on specific patient populations and blood pressure and COPD and cystic fibrosis, uh, high blood pressure. Um, sleep apnea, asthma, you name it, lots of different cardiorespiratory disorders. And, you know, we won lots of awards and wrote lots of papers and so on, and all the research is published. And, and that was brilliant. But I guess it really taught me how to how to um, navigate the research field, how to read a paper, how to interpret it, um, what was significant, what wasn't, um, you know, what was, what was of value to the patient on the ground as such, as opposed to just saying, well, you know, this might have, a small effect on something which is which is largely irrelevant. Um, 
So, as I say, my passion for endometriosis was ignited back in, in 2019 at the conference you kindly invited me to speak at, and then at the movie screening I really thought. So, what I was trying to do was help as many people as possible all over the world. And obviously, me, myself, I couldn't go and see all these people in, in the clinic because it just, you know, I think there's about 200 million people with endometriosis, which is just amazing, really. And it's it's only now been scratching the surface of, of a little bit of, uh, you know, publicity around the, the fact that it even exists. Um, and that's for healthcare professionals and the public. But that's that's a different conversation, maybe. So um, what I've tried to do is come up with a nutrition product uh, based on all the scientific research that's available to, to, to date among um, people with endometriosis, targeting the underlying pathology, so what actually causes, um, and we don't know enough about it, but we do know certain uh, aspects, and then obviously the symptoms, and the symptoms, as, as your listeners well, well know, are quite, can be quite severe, from pain due to um, pain, infertility, bloating, and so on and so forth. Um, so it's trying to target actually what, what's happening underneath and then how that pathology actually manifests. So um, we've just launched the product um, this month, uh, yeah, October 2023. Uh, so it's been, it's been on the go for at least four years, but uh, really one year of intensive work uh, since, since uh, uh, the movie screening. So we're delighted to eventually uh, uh, launch that product. And the product contains, uh, I just want to make sure I get it right, 17 nutrients. And each of those is specifically uh, um, chosen by me uh, based on the research in the, the, the proven amounts to help uh, with multiple aspects of, of endometriosis. And um, those nutrients include things like seaweeds, Irish seaweeds. Um, we have an Indian frankincense extract, which is called Boswellia serrata. We have uh, pineapple extract. We have curcuminoids from turmeric extract. We have ginger extract. We've a really powerful antioxidant called N-acetylcysteine or NAC. We've uh, another compound called PEA. We've got piperin, which comes from black pepper. Silymarin, which comes from milk thistle herb. And then we've got quercetin, which is a type of nutrient called a polyphenol. It's found in things like red onion uh, and green tea, but in really, really small quantities. And then we've also got key vitamins and minerals like uh, folic acid, vitamin B6, vitamin C and D, and zinc. Uh, so all of those nutrients in the, the, the amounts that we use have been documented to have uh, profound effects on um, endometriosis pathology and symptoms. And that's, I think, one of the things as well that you'll find that people with endometriosis are looking for that we've maybe read headlines and, you know, N-acetylcysteine was one of them recently, like, you know, and you read the headline and you think, oh, this is going to be brilliant. And then you think, oh, I'm actually taking vitamin D as well and think, and I'm taking maybe vitamins and I'm taking, you know, and you think if you could combine this in one. <laughs> so it's nice to see something like that sort of brought together. But did you find that, and, and certainly from you know my own sort of side of it, I find that there's not a huge amount of research in endometriosis in general. Um, a lot of the research that's out there on endometriosis and nutrition as well, we could really do with some, you know, uh, good studies, well-designed studies. Could you see a role for something like that um, in Ireland or is something like that just too difficult to, to carry out? Say if you wanted to carry like a randomised control trial, could we do something like that? Yeah, I think it's, look, anything's possible, uh, especially when you get people together and working together. So absolutely, um, it, it, it would be possible. It wouldn't be easy, but as I always say, like nothing, nothing worthwhile is, is necessarily easy. 
so absolutely i'm always reminded there was a study done now it was done the year i was born so 1987 again to show my age here um, and it was done in the uk where a group of patients just got together now this was you know a long time ago and there was very little uh, therapeutic um, interventions for ms and thankfully now there is some um, but back then there wasn't so they got together and they raised money um, by themselves and then funded a research trial on nutrition themselves amongst themselves and that was published by really really excellent researchers uh, in really really good journals and it was kind of cutting edge science for the day but obviously things have progressed since then so I always just think of that study that literally you know the, the power of people the power especially of patients who were obviously so proactive and so passionate and um, that it's it's kind of hard to, to replicate that so yeah absolutely it could be done i'm sure you've seen that in the, the ms community as well as the endometriosis community as well too that people are more than willing to help and more than willing to give their time um and i suppose i always think of some of the the plant-based people that i follow and you know there's always that line there's no money in broccoli you know <laughs> uh, so we're probably not going to see a randomized control trial on broccoli but um in terms of you know combining a product like that can you sort of tell me how difficult that was to try and get like obviously good quality ingredients you know local source ingredients where you can but how do you bring all that together in something that's you know bearing in mind we usually have dodgy barrels we usually have dodgy tummies we might be a wee bit hypersensitive to things you know and then you've got the awkward people like me who are vegan and gluten-free how do you do that (laughs) Yeah, well, thankfully, we've managed to tick all the boxes. So the product is vegan. It's 100% plant-based and it is uh, gluten-free as well. Um, and, and also suitable for, for younger adults. Uh, I think it's age, ages 12 and up. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the process was quite uh, quite difficult because, as I say, you know, one of the things I saw at my clinic was people were coming saying, well, you know, I'm taking a vitamin D and vitamin C and zinc and five or six botanicals and whatever. And all of a sudden, they're on 10, 15 different preparations. And that's just their supplements, never mind any medications or anything else. And I was just thinking, God, like, it sounds really expensive and really painful to have to take 15 tablets or 15 different preparations every day. And a lot of people then were coming and saying, oh, I'd heard that such and such was good. Or I'd read this on, you know, a blog or something I saw it on Instagram or TikTok. I was thinking, well, there's absolutely no evidence that that's good. And there's actually some evidence that it's harmful. So I certainly wouldn't be recommended it. And then they were like, oh, my God, like throwing it in the bin as we're walking out the door. I was thinking there has to be a better way. And that's kind of why the reason why I founded uh, a nutrition company. Uh, you, you'll have to forgive me. I'm in my office here. So all the boxes here are behind me. Um, so the company's called Phytofix, where fight means plant and then fix to fix your health. So plants to fix your health, fight to fix your health, Phytofix. So when we were doing our trials to get the product um, tested, it was really, really cumbersome. <laughs> we had to try and combine everything which we found was effective in a single product. And that we had to combine all of the ingredients in the optimized doses and then try and put that into a capsule. And this was extremely difficult because we had to, if you can imagine, we had to weigh them, we had to blend them together. Certain elements kind of fought, they didn't like each other. Um, certain elements kind of stuck together, other elements almost like you know ran away from each other and um, so it was really tricky and then to try and get the amounts that we were looking for in other words the effective amounts uh, was very very difficult and then <clears throat> obviously as you mentioned you know a lot of people with endometriosis and, and adenomyosis and 
and a lot of people in just the modern world have like tummy sensitivities and and gut sensitivities and so on. So we didn't want to put in any um kind of as as it's called in the in the industry nasty. So we didn't put in any fillers or additives or chemicals or it's literally active ingredients and the capsule and that's it. So there's nothing else in there. And we even were able to source a capsule made from fermented tapioca. So again, if there is anybody with a, a dodgy tummy or a, or bowels, um, this is probably as as safe as you're going to get. But all um, with all natural ingredients. That's brilliant. Like that, that is a great achievement because you know I know myself from like over the decades of mixing and matching and combining all sorts. Um, yeah, it can be hard, hard new system, and it's usually the fillers. Um, I think that most people just find intolerable as well too. Yeah. And in terms of, you know, if I was to take your product now and say, right, you know, can you give me the biggest influence that's in the endohormone fix or what's the one ingredient that you really didn't want to leave out? Oh, okay. So if we go <laughs> first question first, so the, the biggest influence, I mean, for, for the person themselves taking it, um, I think pain, if somebody is in pain, regular pain, I think they will notice a reduction in pain. And that we, we based on our own research and the research which is available, we imagine that will come relatively quickly, maybe within four to eight weeks. But other uh, benefits may take a little bit longer. Um, and, you know, the, the composition has been shown to have things like uh, serum estrogen levels, which is obviously, you know, a, a major uh, contributing factor um, to endometriosis. Um, also CA125 levels which again I'm sure many of your listeners will be um, very familiar with so that we can actually lower both estrogen and CA125 and inflammatory markers and progesterone uh, sorry not progesterone um, prostaglandin E2 which is one of the other kind of sensitive markers that's used for, for endometriosis and um, also just in terms of uh, um, you know the actual uh, uh, the, the period cycle and um, it does seem to be able to reduce um, volume and duration of bleeding, which again, maybe not will affect everybody, but anybody who does affect, um, it does seem to have that effect uh, in lowering, as I said, the bleeding uh, duration and volume uh, within four to eight weeks. But we think a little bit longer for, for the overall benefit. And one thing I should just say for, for your use, I actually uh, I see one over here on the desk, I'll grab it in a second. Um, the, the product comes in a pouch of 90 capsules and we recommend three a day to get the full uh, the full doses. Um, but after maybe like three or six months or something like that, it's, it's probably possible to go down to two a day and maybe, maybe even one a day. Um, but we definitely think to start off at least three a day. Um, we currently have it only available as capsules, but in the future we are uh, going to explore having it as a powder. We just take one spoon of powder every day as opposed to three capsules for that. So now capsules are, are what we're using and uh, people seem to be, uh, you know, reporting really good results, even though, as I say, we've just launched it. That's good. That's good early feedback as well. And I think, too, one of the, the things, and you know, it's, it's a real bugbear of mine as well, is that when we have research done about us, but do, that doesn't include us, and you were very good, you included, you know, the endometriosis community in the product development as well, too, looking for feedback and looking for input and looking for you know, just the, the genuine sort of um, raw comments back from people because we are we are usually quite brutal. Um, and it's great to have that because I've seen too many things go from research to publication, go from research to product, where 
they've obviously never spoken to a patient in their lives because it should never have got to that point. And we're living in the the land of, um, you know, influencer branded products as well, too. Um, and not to say that some research didn't go behind that, but there's nothing stopping me from, you know, going on to a particular country's website and ordering a product and putting my name on it and calling it whatever. Um, so again, it's very important, again, that people do look at not just the science behind what is out there, but also who is behind that. And does that person have the credentials? You know, and I think, again, to, you know, O'Connor, like what I'd ask you, you just to speak as well to, that's one of the things that I'm looking for. I'm looking for, you know, not just, you know, have you got the book smarts, but you've also got the ability to speak, but you've also got lived experience. And I think bringing those together does bring that sort of um, different feel to things. So on to that second part of that question, what's the one part that you uh, wouldn't leave out of the formula? <laughs> the awkward question. Wow. Um, God, I don't even know. To be honest, um, you know, like looking at some products which seem to be popular or maybe targeted towards um, people with endometriosis, you know, they might contain one element which our product contains or maybe two at a push or maybe it's just generic things like the vitamins. But we put in, um, you know, the kitchen sink, we have everything in there which has been shown to be beneficial. Um, so which one would I leave out? Which one would I not leave out? That's a pretty tricky question, I have to say. So I might have to take a pass on that one. But I <laughs> one thing, not to, not to cop out, but one thing I was very uh, conscious to do was include some of the key vitamins, like like vitamin B9 or folic acid. Um, because obviously, you know, some people using this may be of childbearing age and may, in fact, uh, you know, be planning or hoping to get pregnant. And it just means that they can say, well, look, that product has everything in there. And we actually use a, a, a specific type of, uh, of folic acid called 5-methyl-tetrahydrofolate, uh, which is uh, even more bioavailable than, than folic acid in, in standard supplements. It's more expensive for us, but it's, it's way more bioactive. And then a lot of feedback is, you know, a lot of people around the world are, have low levels of vitamin D, mostly because we're not getting any sunshine or not enough sunshine, including here in Ireland in, in October. Um, so we included vitamin D in there as well. Um, so it means that most people, you know, especially, you know, younger ladies are probably going to be taking folic acid and vitamin D. So you don't need to take those because it's already in there. So even just for that benefit alone, you know, it's it's really, really uh, appropriate. But then we have, as I say, I think it's 14 other ingredients on there, you know, targeting um, the underlying pathologies and the symptoms as well. So Brilliant. And, you know, again, too, I suppose like everything, like we have a lot of hyper in vitamin D, a lot of hyper and a lot of vitamins. But yeah. again, when you take a lot of this into context and, you know, knowing where we live in Ireland, like, you know, once it's, it's sort of, you know, comes anywhere near October, we're not getting any vitamin D from the sun at all. And even during the summer, a lot of us are covered up or we've got factor yeah. 50 on. So we're like we're nearly avoiding it completely. Yeah. And just um, that, Kathleen, just a little bit of value for your for your listeners as well. So I always tell my patients about Curly's rule for vitamin D production from the sun. So this is one you can remember. So you want to look at your shadow on the ground. If your shadow, I'm about six foot, so I want to see my shadow to be shorter than my height. So in other words, to be six foot or less. Um, and if it's not, forget it. Uh, if your shadow is really, really long, no vitamin D. And it's got to do with the angle of the sun penetrating the ozone layer by the time it hits the Earth's surface. So it doesn't matter where in the world you are, what time of year it is, or what time of day it is. Check your shadow. First of all, if you've no shadow, forget it. But if you do have a shadow, just check it, see how long it is. I always say to my patients as well, romantic walks on the beach at, at 9, 10 p.m. in the evening, 
it won't cut it. It's the shadow's too long. So uh, just have a little look on the ground and, and you'll notice uh, how, how short your shadow is. And if it's too long, no vitamin D, unfortunately. That's a great wee tip. And considering we have the most fantastic beaches in the world in Donegal, and I'm yeah. sure the rest of the country have lovely places too, but Donegal is lovely. Um, what would be the optimal time if I was to get my vitamin D from the sun? How would I do it? Yeah, so again, this is a bit of a tricky one because uh, we are taught, you know, that sun is going to cause skin cancer, and it does, um, but it's excess sun. Um, so I would recommend if you want to get your best vitamin D slot, especially in somewhere in Ireland, you're looking at between 11 a.m. and 2 p.m. really. You know, obviously, the further south we go here in Ireland or the for, further, the closer to the equator we get, you know, the stronger the sun is. And then the same rule applies, just check your shadow. Um, but somewhere in Ireland or let's say North America, Canada, Scandinavia, UK, parts of like South Australia and New Zealand, um, you know, a good time is nine to, to two. But for example, here in Ireland from September till about March, no vitamin D. It's just not going to happen. It doesn't matter how sunny it is. The sun is not strong enough. Um, so six months of the year. And what we see when it tests patients is high in summer, low throughout the winter, and then high again and low again. And this this is not uh, this is not optimal for the body. Um, but the second thing I would say is for somebody like me with Caucasian skin, you need about 20 minutes of sun, probably 10 to 15 if you're not used to sun. But about 20 minutes, you never, ever want to burn. So avoid burning at all costs. But about 20 minutes, uh, and then if you can, I would do 10 minutes in the front, 10 minutes in the back. And then I always say Curly's Knit Rule number two, if I can for a bonus point, is I um, expose more skin for less time as opposed to less skin for more time. So in other words, don't go out for four or five hours with just your face. Go out for 20 minutes in like a shorts and bass or a swimming suit or something like this and expose as much skin as you can. Um, and I'm not saying the streak or anything like that. <laughs> I um, can't claim Curly's Rule number two when I'm arrested, no? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not taking the blame. Um, for example, if, if you just take my arm, for example, here, if if this bit is exposed to the sun and then, uh, you know, I'm wearing clothes and I uh, roll down my sleeve, this bit will stop making vitamin D after about 20 minutes. But the new bit that's exposed here will start making vitamin D from scratch. And same again, if I roll the sleeve down again, this new bit here will start making vitamin D and so on. So you can see, you know, if you're if you're out with your whole arm and then your whole other side of your arm, so you front and back you know, 10 minutes, you know, you're not going to damage your skin. Um, absolutely perfect. And then the last one I'll say is, again, for someone like me with Caucasian skin, about 20,000 units I would make in about 20 minutes. So 20,000 units, to put that into context, a really large piece of salmon, about 800 to 1,000 units. So again, do you want 20 minutes of sun or do you want 20, 25 pieces of large pieces of salmon? <laughs> I know which way I'd go. And then last one, I know I've mentioned Caucasian a few times. So anyone who has darker skin, of course you can make vitamin D, of course you can. But it's the melanin that uh, makes the skin darker, which actually protects the skin from sun damage. But it means vitamin D production uh, efficiency is a little bit lower. Um, but you can still make the same amount. And that's fine if you're exposed to lots of sun. So example, I'm saying 20 minutes. That would mean someone who has darker skin might need more like an hour. Um, but it will depend on, on the person's skin, how dark the skin is, and then, of course, how, how uh, strong the sun is, is as well. Our bodies are truly amazing, like, when it comes to something like that, aren't they? Absolutely. They really yeah. are. And I think this sort of brings us around to the nutritional support side again, doesn't it, in how best do we support our bodies? How do we make sure that, I suppose, we're giving ourselves 
the best tools to sort of heal and the best tools to work with the inflammation because you know certainly in Ireland when I was growing up like you know your food was considered packing and off you go like don't worry about the nutritional content it'll be all right <laughs> it'll be grand um but we've come on like we've learned a lot like we've we've done a good bit now around sort of things like that but and I know certainly you'll have seen it as well we tend to take a grow for certain foods where we will have like kale and it's a superfood and it's whatever but next week it's goji berries and the week after it's something else when we sort of know that if we have a good mix of you know a good varied diet certainly a huge mix of plant-based diet as well or plant-based foods um that's probably you know quite a good start um do you really see that, you know, food as a healing tool and a support for the body or maybe it is just filling, maybe it is just packing? What do you think? Um, well, I think it, it's both, isn't it? Um, but I think there is really good evidence showing that, you know, food, while not, while food is not medicine, that food really supports the, the healthfulness of the body. And, you know, that's plain to see that, it, you know, if you if you have a really unhealthy diet for a couple of days, you feel sluggish um, you know, your energy levels plummet. Um, you maybe you don't sleep as well, etc. Maybe your mood plummets a little bit, and the exact opposite that if you have a really really good diet, that you know you're full of energy, you sleep better, you know you're energetic, you're you're able for the day, and you know I think so many people just don't even realize that they don't even realize how good or bad they feel because that's what they do every day, and it's just that's their normal. Um, but the evidence backs all of this up. You know, like there's really amazing research showing that, you know food can influence your mood and it can influence your mood very quickly and that's you know when the average person or someone who maybe you know is prone to depression but food can make a difference um, and of course I always caveat things by saying you know nutrition and food is, is amazing but it's part of a lifestyle and the lifestyle can be even more powerful when we start including you know physical activity movements like good sleep habits uh, you know not letting ourselves get overly stressed and staying away from cigarettes hard hard drugs and things like this that you know you really start as i say in my patients like you're stacking the odds in your favor so if somebody has endometriosis or ms or any condition or just wants to live a a, a long healthy life it's like well you know it's a cigarette a cigarette will maybe stack the odds against you but you know 10 portions of fruit and veg will stack the odds for you and you know how do you weigh it up and, you know, I don't think anybody expects anybody to live a, a perfect lifestyle, even though we don't even know what that is. Um, but, you know, adding the odds in your favour means that you can really say, OK, you know, I'm going to a birthday party at the weekend and I know I'm going to have a cake and maybe a few wines or beers or whatever it is. But, you know what, I'm going to have a really healthy lunch before I go on a walk and make sure the next day I have a really healthy breakfast or whatever. And as long as you enjoy that party, then it's certainly not the end of the world. And that's it. It's about balance, isn't it? And about not beating ourselves up over things as well, too, because I know certainly, you know, when I was in the middle of horrendous pain flowers, you know, it, literally a can of Coke was the only thing I could manage because it was going to help get the pain meds in. It was going to give me sugar. It was going to give me caffeine. You know, the other times, yeah, surely I could concentrate on my diet. Um, So it's about giving ourselves that we would have, I suppose, grace as well that we can you know, have a, a a treat as such or something that's going to give us that wee bit of emotional um support as well as a sort of sugar hit. Yeah, um, absolutely. Like, I mean, as I say, like, you know, if you're in pain or look, every most people are busy, you know, maybe working, maybe have kids, maybe have other family commitments, etc. And add on top of that, MS or endometriosis or adenomyosis or, or whatever else it is, you know, like, look, I certainly wouldn't be saying that anybody beat themselves up or, you know, be unforgiving you know live your life enjoy your life but do realize that 
you know, not to have that kind of cook every single day or every single meal or whatever. But look, you know, needs must under certain circumstances, of course, absolutely. And certainly I would never uh, encourage anybody to beat themselves up. Absolutely not. And in terms of like, you know, again, that very busy lifestyle, we're all sort of caught up in now. And, you know, again, if you're living with a chronic illness or, or you know, and you know that you've, you know, maybe have bad days and that. Um, in terms of what can we do to prepare for things like that? Because we see a lot of people meal prepping and we see a lot of people maybe going, oh, on those days I only have maybe like a juice or a smoothie or I might have just, you know, something very basic. You know, is there a nutritional difference between something that we literally, you know, maybe pick out of the ground and, you know, cook straight away or maybe a frozen food? You know, is there is it OK to do something like that? Absolutely. And I would certainly encourage it for sure, because as you say, if if there's something in the freezer ready to be defrosted and cooked or whatever, or, or just thrown in the microwave, you know, it's certainly it's certainly going to be much uh, more satisfying and, and healthy as such than, you know, nothing or, you know, a big takeaway or or whatever else it is, or, you know, running out to the supermarket and getting, you know, as you say, the Cokes and the chocolates and whatever else it is. Um, so yeah, absolutely. So, you know, just on a very basic level, um, we tend to think of, you know, fresh is best and et cetera. And sometimes it is, but sometimes it's not necessarily. So for example, we take vegetables as a, as a, as a good example, you know, vegetables are picked and then if they're sent to, to the supermarket, you know, that could be a two, three week journey by the time they're picked in whatever country they're picked in, you know, shipped all over the world and then end up at a supermarket, maybe sitting on the supermarket for a week, two weeks before you buy it and then bring it home for a couple of days and then you cook it. Whereas sometimes, you know, what they'll do is they'll pick it in the in the farm and let you flash freeze it immediately. So they'll lock in a lot of the goodness. And then you what you're buying is that locked in goodness. And that's what you cook and that's what you eat. So, you know, I eat a lot of frozen stuff. It's so convenient. It's often cheaper. It's often just as tasty. Um, so absolutely frozen is great. And, you know, a great example, um, you know, if somebody makes, for example, a curry or a bolognese or something like this, you know, just make a little bit of an extra portion and just freeze one or two portions for yourself, stick them in the freezer. And then when things aren't going so well, then, you know, um, if you're just really, really busy, stressed or, you know, as you say, in pain, you can just defrost that, cook that. And then, you know, at least you're, you're nourishing your body and um, you're not putting yourself through, you know, torture trying to cook and shop and so on. So frozen, absolutely brilliant. Yeah, for sure. Brilliant. And that is a good help. And it's, you know, like even a bag of frozen veggies, you know, thrown into any soups or stews or things like that, like it stretches them out as well, which is brilliant. Yeah, yeah, it's great like that, you know, and it's, as you say, being able to just throw that extra portion in is is really, really good. Now, as you'll know, over the last number of years online, there is a huge rise in misinformation and misguidance out there. And you know, the endometriosis community is not immune to that, unfortunately. And a lot of that is around um, the notion that there is some sort of endo diet. And it's something I get asked quite a lot. Um, and I know where the notion stems from. Um, and I know that, you know, when you try and put all these things together, it leads to a very restrictive diet and a very restrictive lifestyle for a lot of people. So I'm sure you've seen that the sort of commentary on that and, you know, do you think there'll ever be something like the endometriosis diet? Will that ever be a thing? Or are we all too individual for something like that? Well, I think at the minute, as you mentioned at the very start, we don't have enough research really in endometriosis in general, but including when it comes to foods, nutrition and diet. And we just don't have enough information 
in saying that there is some uh, research which is quite uh, suggestive and if we even just pair it back and think of like some of the features of endometriosis like inflammation estrogen oxidative stress like these can definitely be targeted um, from a nutrition point of view for sure um, so I would say I would imagine that probably the optimal diet for endometriosis will eventually be shown to be high in anti-inflammatory foods and low in pro-inflammatory foods high in, in foods which are um, antioxidant and I, as I always say to my patients you know if you imagine an apple and you take a bite after a few minutes it starts to go brown that's the oxygen damage in the apple and that's what happens inside us you know all the time as we're breathing so there's two ways to stop it number one don't breathe <laughs> and number two eat an antioxidant rich diet um, and antioxidants come from cultured fruits and vegetables herbs spices beans nuts seeds uh, green tea things like this um, these are really really high in antioxidants um, and there um, some of these foods have already been shown to uh, you know uh, be anti-inflammatory as well um, so it makes sense that these sort of foods would be uh, would be really beneficial in, in the context of endometriosis and adenomyosis and inflammation in general which inflammation kind of drives a lot of uh, processes in the body from diabetes to heart disease to cancers and MS, that uh, inflammation is so important. At the minute, there is no solid um, nutrition evidence, uh, really, um, but there's some very uh, suggestive evidence um, that certain things can be important. I know uh, there's a lot of interest in um, in FODMAP, the low FODMAP diet, and also gluten, uh, gluten and uh, gluten-free diets and endometriosis. And it really seems to be a crossover with uh, um, IBS. Um, <clears throat> um, sorry, my brain's gone blank. Uh, <laughs> not inflammatory, irritable bowel uh, syndrome, IBS. Um, but of course, not everybody has IBS that has endometriosis. And gluten, although it may not be exactly a health food, is not necessarily uh, you know, the worst food either. So I wouldn't necessarily just go straight to the low FODMAP or a gluten-free diet for everybody but for some people absolutely there would be really really good approaches especially if there is a gastro gastro issues as well. So would you recommend then speaking maybe to somebody like yourself like a dietitian or you know somebody who's who's quite well trained in that sort of side before you would embark on something like that? Yeah, I mean, if anybody is interested in making major dietary changes, I would uh, suggest speaking to a dietitian. I would recommend speaking to a dietitian, a trained dietitian, who can make sure that not only you're going to cut stuff out, but you're not going to, going to miss anything which is important. Um, so we see it all the time. Maybe somebody cuts out dairy products and their calcium intake becomes very low, which can predispose to the bone issues and so on. Um, but in saying that, if somebody wants to cut out dairy and they come and speak to me or somebody like me, we can certainly come up with a, a calcium-rich diet, which is still dairy-free. So it's not a major problem. Similarly, you know, if somebody wanted to go vegan or plant-based or whatever, you know, you, you can sometimes miss out on nutrients, but it's certainly not, um, not a, a, it doesn't have to be so. Um, so if anybody is listening and is going to make major dietary changes, I would just recommend uh, speaking with a healthcare professional and specifically a dietitian uh, before doing so, um, just to get the guidance around making sure they're getting what they need and maybe uh, guidance on, on what might actually help as well. And I suppose given the, the high incidence of um, you know, celiac disease in this country and also the high incidence of you know, B12 malabsorption, 
um, you know, it's worth checking in with your GP as well to make sure that those sort of conditions have been excluded um, as being you know, maybe um, a source of irritation or maybe a source of why maybe certain parameters are like B12 or iron or low. Because when you're bleeding very heavily from something like adenomyosis, it's very easy to fall into iron deficiency anemia. And then, you know, when your B12 starts going again, like you end up then like into the macrocytic anemia. So it's, you know, I suppose keep an eye on things like that, but making sure that we're absorbing it as well is very important. And I think too, where, you know, any of us who would have done home economics back in the day, we would have learned that combining certain foods are important. And I suppose equally with taking something like the the endohormone fix or even any of the Phytofix products, um, I'm sure, you know, like many as a person like myself will have knocked something back with a cup of tea and then gone, that probably wasn't a good idea. So we know that certain things interfere. So we know orange juice and iron, right? Vitamin C yeah. and iron. We shouldn't take the tea with the iron because it's going to block it. So when I'm taking, if I'm taking the endohormone fix now, um, what's the best way to take it? Do I take it just with a wee drop of water with dinner or do I take it on an empty stomach? Or how's, what's the best way for that? Yeah, so we just recommend taking it with food. So many of the nutrients in there are what we call fat soluble. And it mm-hmm. means that they're absorbed with fats, with dietary fats. And if you don't consume fats at the same time, so this doesn't mean you have to have a burger or a, a pizza or something like this. Any any sort of meal will do absolutely fine. Um, but if you if you don't have it with a fatty with a meal which contains some fats, like for example, we just had it with a plain slice of toast with nothing on the toast, um, we know the absorption would be decreased. Um, but in just an average meal, like let's say porridge in the morning with some seeds, or uh, lunch with uh, let's say a sandwich and you know a yogurt or whatever and just like a stew for dinner or something, any of those meals would be absolutely perfect for helping to absorb it. But if somebody does go to the barber buying, you know, a product which does have these fat-soluble nutrients like vitamin D, for example, certain ginger components, the curcuminoids we have in there, the Indian frankincense, like they're all fat-soluble. And if you don't take it with the fats, then you're not going to get the full benefit. And kind of, not that it defeats the purpose, but it definitely uh, decreases the effectiveness. The other thing I say is, so we recommend three tablets, three capsules a day. And if possible at all, we do recommend spacing those out. So if you can, maybe two at breakfast and one at dinner, or maybe one at breakfast, lunch and dinner, because it just means the nutrients go into your bloodstream each time. Whereas if you take them all at once, you get a big spike, but then they kind of come out of your bloodstream over the course of the day. So if you can, you know, three times throughout the day. But obviously, that's quite difficult in, in people's lives. So three, most people do take three at once, and that's absolutely fine. But if you can at all, you know, if you're working from home or if you can keep it in your handbag or at your uh, desk in work or beside the cooker or something like this, that three, uh, three separate times would be better than three at once. But I suppose that's really to, at the upper end of uh, effectiveness. We're talking small differences, but look, every little bit counts. And some people will be motivated to take three a day uh, separately, whereas others might. I prefer to, to just do uh, three once a day um, but definitely more important to make sure you take it with a meal Brilliant and that, that's a great tip as well too and it's one that you know we often miss sometimes with even medications you know we might skim through the packet and think I'll be fine and then you yeah. miss the bit where it tells you not to eat grapefruit <laughs> You know, yeah, we're, exactly. we're taking it with, take it with meals. You're like, oh, yeah. okay. Um, it shows you how formulations of not just supplements, but medications and all that are, you know, they are dependent on certain variables, you know. Um, one thing I wanted to sort of touch on and, you know, it's, um, I suppose, too, the, the, you know, if you look at the irritable bowel side and all the bowel sort of symptoms that come with endometriosis, that, you know, people are a little bit scared of going towards maybe a more plant-based diet or including more plants in their diet. And especially like the beans and legumes and stuff, they're sort of thinking, 
have enough bother there without picking all that off, you know? So is there a way, would you say to somebody, like, would you gradually introduce it? Or how would you sort of talk to somebody around that if they're looking to introduce more fiber, again, to help with the hormone clearing process, but also to help with that bowel transit as well? Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned there at the very end, you know, like five different types of fibers have been shown to be very fit, uh, beneficial, obviously for bowel, bowel function, which we know, you know, clearing, uh, clearing the bowels out and so on. And that's kind of where fiber was traditionally thought to be important and nothing else. But we now know what happens is the fiber is actually digested by the bacteria in our gut, the gut microbiome. And then the gut microbiome produce compounds from eating the fiber. And those additional compounds, which the bacteria make, are really, really beneficial including for things like uh, uh, the brain brain connection as well as um, as uh, inflammation. So short-chain fatty acids, we call them. Um, so really, really important. And unfortunately, if someone doesn't eat a lot of fibrous foods, then they're really going to miss out on a lot of benefits, including these short-chain fatty acids. If somebody isn't eating a huge amount of plant foods or a huge variety of plant foods, then absolutely, as I mentioned, the best way to go about it is just increasing slowly. You know, and that could mean literally an extra uh, spoon of porridge or, you know, um, beans or something like this per day. And then maybe building that up and so on to the point where it's not causing any trouble anymore. And it, it's the same with anything. You know, if, if we think of some medications, you can't just go in at the highest dose. You start off really small and then you, you titrate it up. So the exact same, like we're not trying to run a marathon tomorrow. We're trying to do a little bit of exercise tomorrow. And the same for, for uh, increasing fibrous foods and plant-based foods. You know, our gut will adjust. Uh, we will change the bacterial composition of our gut, which means not only are we more able to digest it, but we're more able to get benefit out of it. Um, so, you know, I, I would not only uh, say it's a good idea, I would actively encourage it to say if somebody is going to increase the, both the amount and types of plant foods to do that slowly. You know, not like overnight say, bang, I want to go in with everything and then say, oh, I feel awful, this plant-based thing's terrible. <laughs> To go in slowly and say, okay, I'm going to go from eating no fruits and veg to maybe two or three portions with maybe half a portion of them, of legumes uh, per day. And then building that up to the point where, you know, you don't have any issues with any of these foods. The other thing I would just recommend as well, just to make sure you chew foods. Um, so obviously, if you have a mouthful of beans and you swallow them, your body has to do an awful lot of work to break that down. Whereas if you chew it, digest it in your mouth for a long time, uh, by the time it actually gets into your tummy, you know, a significant amount of the hard work is done. I, I always remember a quote from somebody saying, really, like, try and drink your foods. Like, literally break them down as much as you can in your mouth to the point where they're almost liquid and you just swallow them. As opposed to shoveling in beans and not even swallowing them. That's a that's a no-brainer. That that's going to give you gas and bloating and everything else. Um, but, you know, I certainly wouldn't be recommending people do that. Yeah, the stomach has no teeth. Exactly. Um, and that's it, isn't it? It is. But, you know, that sort of takes us back to, to being very mindful in what we're doing as well, doesn't it? You know, that sort of mindful eating thing. And I know we've seen mindfulness bandied around so often for everything, but mindful eating, even just thinking, you know, not just what you're eating, but how you're eating, the environment you're eating. Are you standing at the counter or are you in the car? Are you dashboard dining? You know, it's nice to try and sit down and have a look what's on the plate and sort of think, OK, this is here just to, you know, fulfill a lot of things so it could be a social thing that you're sitting with family or friends and you're eating it could be you know it's going to satisfy your hunger it's also going to you know help fight the inflammation it's going to bring nutrition you know there's so many things tied up with food isn't there and it's um 
learning to enjoy that again thing I think too if you've been quite unwell um especially with bowel issues or, or gastric issues you know it's learning to enjoy that food I yeah it's is nice and, you know what I would say is you know I, I was in France a couple of weeks ago and it always strikes me when I'm on the continent that people just seem to it doesn't matter how busy work is or whatever it's no no sorry it's dinner time or it's lunch time and to sit down for a two three course meal every day and you know well maybe not every day but you know a lot of the time and just relax and don't, their phones aren't ringing and they're not eating a sandwich at their desk in, in five minutes and getting back to work i think that's really really important um to kind of switch off and enjoy the food the company the eating it occasion as you say and obviously if somebody is you know unwell today and tomorrow you know we're not recommending that you, you have a lovely meal with with your neighbors or whatever invite the whole family over but when you are able you know enjoy those experiences you know enjoy the meal and the company and so on and um yeah absolutely uh you know i think the mindfulness thing has been a bit talked to talk overhyped maybe as such but uh absolutely just enjoying your food and you know taking time and and um, enjoying what's on the plate you know i think is much more healthy than and just having a plate of broccoli and shoveling it in and getting out the door. Um, so it's not just always about like you know what we're eating. Maybe it's about how we're eating it as well. It is. And I think with the media and certainly social media, everything is hyped to the extreme, isn't it? We can't just have kale. We have to have kale smoothies and kale and absolutely everything. It's the same yeah. with mindfulness. <laughs> and it's, you know, I suppose, again, this always, and I'm, I'm always banging on about this. People are sick of listening to me talking about the 1% theory. But it is that it's those tiny, tiny changes that all add up that make a difference, you know, um, and that might be something, again, adding in that wee bit of extra porridge that we supplement or, you know, eating slightly differently or changing the times when you eat your meals as well can sort of help too. But you yeah. touched on one of my other favorite topics, and I'm going to grill you on this now for a wee minute, um, the microbiome. So are we just really here to serve the um, gut and uh, other microflora that we have? Um, or is it the other way around? <laughs> well, wow, that's a big question to start off. <laughs> I, think, I think we're really scratching the surface of the microbiome research and really the microbiome uh, essentially refers to the bacteria within the gut. But we also have a microbiome, uh, which is the viruses within the gut. And then we have uh, fungi within the gut and we have lots of different things going on in there. And we're really only scratching the surface. So people tend to think, you know, maybe if they have, I don't know, would you say kale, maybe if you have kale, then your gut's really happy and your bacteria all running around. Without realising that there's probably thousands of different types of bacteria and maybe tens of thousands of just different strains and so on. So it's not like taking one, just mean, taking one food or something. This means the whole entire gut is, is happy. And taking one bad food means, or, you know, bad food means the whole entire gut is unhappy. But the gut really does seem to be quite important for a number of things, a number of reasons. Um, but the nice thing is that kind of the things we've been talking about, you know, in terms of uh, lifestyle and nutrition for forever really seem to hold true. So we mentioned fiber. There are really two ways that we can nourish the microbiome. Or number one with fiber, which as we said, the, the microbiome, or, or the, the bacteria within our gut actually digest and make the short chain fatty acids and the foods which are high in fiber as we said were like the whole grains you know your uh, whole wholemeal pasta you know potatoes with the skin on uh fruits vegetables beans nuts legumes uh, and seeds and um, whereas we're not going to get any in meats and dairy and so on and eggs or whatever else it is so if you want to have a, a a diet high in fiber then they're the foods you need to eat 
Um, but the other route then is something called polyphenols. And these are, uh, I mentioned these earlier because they're in the, and they're hormone fixed. Um, but polyphenols also nourish the gut in a similar way. Um, and polyphenols then are found in, uh, again, your colorful fruits and vegetables, your spi- herbs and spices, uh, your green tea, your dark chocolate, uh, foods like that. And then it just so happens that they're really the foods that have fiber and polyphenols. Uh, and there's very few polyphenols in, again, um, you know, the animal products as such. And um, say if somebody wants to increase these foods, um, you know, they may think about talking to a dietitian. And if somebody wants to decrease the, the animal products for, for various reasons, um, again, that's absolutely fine. But just, uh, you know, consider seeking professional advice from a dietitian before doing that. Um, but do we serve the microbiome or vice versa? <laughs> it's, a, it's a deep question, but I think really what's coming more consistent is the microbiome is really, really important. But even uh, research is coming out now showing that stress is not so good for the gut, for the microbiome, and we can measure this. And also uh, physical movement, uh, physical uh, activity seems to be really good for the gut as well. So, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of showing a new way that the old things are beneficial for, for us. You know, it's still the, the plant foods, it's still the exercise, it's still the stress reduction. But now we're saying, oh, that's really cool. It has this effect on the microbiome. But you know what? It's still really doing the same thing. So, you know, there's major advances for sure. But at the end of the day, what do you and I and everybody else listening to need to do? You know, try and increase our plant foods, try and be physically active every day and try and, you know, not be really stressed 24-7. That's it. And it, it is as simple as that, though, isn't it? And introducing that variety into your diet as well, too. So, you know, many plants, many sources. And, you know, I think we forget, too, that plants include, you know, seeds and spices and fruits as well, too, you know, because people often separate fruits out from the vegetables. So there's such a wide variety out there for us as well, too. And it keeps the bugs really yeah. happy when they see a mix Absolutely. of things. So <laughs> it really does. There's some really fascinating research Sarah, showing that, you know, if you have a choice between, let's say, four apples every day or one apple and one orange so two portions versus four but the apple and orange together would be more beneficial than the apples alone and a really simple way to think about it is just say apples are really high in one nutrient and really low in another and oranges are really high in one nutrient and really low in another and obviously by having an apple and an orange you're kind of getting the best of the both worlds but if you're adding in some strawberries and some bananas and some kale and some linseed and some whole meal pasta and so on, then you're really hitting a lot of, uh, a lot of different, uh, you know, ticks as such. So I think people come out now saying, uh, trying to have 30 plants per week, which sounds like an awful lot. There's only four and a half different plants a day. Uh, so it's not that difficult. Um, but also, I always just think, well, why limit it? Just say, like, eat as many different varieties of plants as you can. And, you know, maybe, maybe it should be 60. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I don't think anybody knows, but, you know, don't, I don't necessarily agree with lad, setting a limit 30, in for 30, you know, in for, in for 100 and see how you can get. Um, but, you know, definitely variety is so, so important. Um, and even just for our taste buds, you know, if we have the same thing every day, we kind of get a little bit uh, bored and so on. So, yeah, absolutely, yeah, variety. So, and look, literally, variety is a spice of life. So use a variety of spices, right? <laughs> um, but the same thing goes for... Uh, Physical activity, you know, like if, if we just say, well, I'm going to go for an hour's walk every day, that hour walk will all of a sudden feel like two hours after a month or two months. Whereas if you're going for an hour walk today, a bit of a cycle, a bit of gardening, a bit of swimming, playing with the grandkids in the playground, whatever it is, all of a sudden you're very physically active and you're not exercising, you're just enjoying moving your body. So, 
variety is so important um, for so many is, and you know we're we've quite elaborate brains for the shape and size of us you know and that's it keeps the brain stimulated as much as everything else that that difference and we'll know that if we haven't been for a walk in a particular area in a while you rediscover things don't you yeah. that's great you know and for me it's like you know i was finding lunch breaks i'm like really do not want to go outside it is cold and it's raining but i found now that that even that five ten minute walk has just been brilliant it's been really really good um and again to that sort of mindset of me being oh it has to be all or nothing it has to be an hour flat out killing myself in the gym or nothing and it was more often nothing so yeah. i think we yeah. need to know i need to take the approach i take the food to also exercise and that as well that little yeah. bits and often are really good and that variety that you've mentioned as well too is fantastic I think earlier on you were talking about that 1% thing. And one thing I would just say to anybody listening is it's just consistency is so, is way underrated as opposed to as you say, okay, I'm going to the gym now. I need to do an hour of high intensity or whatever. Like, you know, you're not going to do that every day. But if you're saying, right, every day I'm going to go and move my body, that's much more beneficial than saying I have to go to the gym and kill myself an hour. And the same for nutrition. You know, if you're saying, well, look, every day I'm going to make sure I have a really healthy breakfast and I at least have salad for with my lunch where no matter what else I have and you know some soup with dinner or something and um, if you do that all the time then it doesn't matter so much if you do end up having a pizza or a burger or whatever else somebody might like to have and similarly you know if you have a lazy day but you're you're moving your body every day other day that's much more beneficial than you know like none of the uh the, the blue zones the people who live to be over 100 they're not all running around doing an hour of uh, high intensity exercise every day and having kale smoothies they're really enjoying their food with their friends and their family. They're physically active all the time, even until they're 100 and 110. And they're just, you know, they're just consistent. So if I had a, an idea for people listening, you know, go for consistency as opposed to perfection, because we don't even know what perfection is, even if even if it was something we're aiming for, we don't even know what it is. So I love that. Consistent. I think that has to be the, the 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 best curly rule there. Like you know, I think you need to patent that one. <laughs> yeah, it's it's going to be I, I con, like consistent, right? Con, <laughs> con or system. <laughs> Trademark that quick. Trademark. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, oh no, but it's it's so true, isn't it? You know. Connor, it has been absolutely fantastic chatting with you again. And we could be here all night. There's no doubt about it, because I've got yeah. loads of things I could be picking your brains on. Well, Connor, maybe, what I'm going to have me back. But uh, one thing I'd just say before I go is, you know, from from the the initial time I spoke with the conference to engage with the community as much as possible over the last uh, number of years. And um, one thing which has come back as a bit of feedback is, you know, more information around nutrition and diet. And one thing which I haven't started working on yet, but I am trying to start working on it, is kind of an online education platform specifically about nutrition and endometriosis and adenomyosis, and specifically what information is available um, in terms of what science is available about that, you know, overall nutrition, dietary patterns, individual foods, and individual nutrients. And, you know, if anybody uh, is interested in that, just engage and let me know it's a thumbs up or you're not interested. And, um, you know, the more people that tell me this is something they're interested in, then the harder I'll work together uh, as soon as possible. And I just see uh, hanging over here just to, before I go, just to show everybody that's watching. This is uh, our famous product here. So Endo Hormone Fix, uh, if it comes out there. And sorry, with the light, <laughs> Endo Hormone Fix. So Endo Hormone Fix is the, the name of the product. And uh, hopefully we can put some uh, links out as well. I'll put all the links in the show notes and certainly we, we get the shout out on social media as well too. We'll get the links over there. 
Connor, again, it's been fantastic chatting and thank you so much for your your interest in endometriosis. So you certainly did not have to take my phone call that day in, in 2019, but you took it, ran with it, you know, went up the mountain with it and have come back down the other side with, you know, insights, research and again, fantastic support for the community. And that's something certainly on behalf of the community I want to thank you for. Um, you know, normally people have a very direct link into endometriosis, and like I say, you came from the outside as such, yeah. but discovered that it is always very, very close. You know, so thank you so much for that. Yeah, and and likewise, Kathleen. You know, like ever since we met, you know, I've just been so impressed by your energy and your your passion, and you know, I hopefully bring a little bit of that to to my work with Endo, but you know, MS and and so on as well, and hopefully uh, we're only getting started. So. You know, I'm so glad I took that phone call and went up the hill. <laughs> Thank you so much. We'll chat to you all later. And thanks for listening to this episode of Derek. We'll catch you all soon. Thanks, Kathleen.